This is Founders Talk, an interview podcast hosted by me, Adam Stachowiak. We profile founders building businesses online as well as offline. And if you found this show on iTunes, we're also on the web at 5x5.tv slash Founders Talk. If you're on Twitter, follow Founders Talk and me, Adam Stack. Today's guest is Alex Hillman, co-founder of Indie Hall. Happy holidays to you and enjoy the show. I'm here with Alex Hillman, co-founder of Indie Hall and co-conspirator and creator of many, many things, which we'll probably talk about here in this podcast. But uh, Alex, it's more than a pleasure to introduce uh, you to everyone here uh, listening to the podcast. So please say hello. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Hi, everybody. I wish they could actually wave their hands back if it was yeah, live. That would be kind of cool. I, I just waved. I waved at my computer screen. <laughs> and I waved at my computer screen. <laughs> I love it. Um, so, Alex, I guess the, the one thing you're most known for is being the co-founder uh, and real real big winning star behind co-working. But you started uh, Indie Hall back, I guess, what, about three or four years ago now? Yeah, well, I started, I first found out about co-working. Um, I was doing some work with uh, Chris Messina and Tara Hunt, who co-founded Citizen Space in San Francisco, which is sort of known to be one of the sort of the, the prototype spaces. And I was doing some freelance work for their agency, Citizen Agency, and found out about co-working through them. And then uh, started down this long and windy path of what co-working could mean in Philadelphia. And um and then four years, that was, I guess that was the end of 2006 or so. We opened our doors in 2007 uh, and have been growing ever since. And you have a co-founder with you at Indie Hall. So what was that like? Uh, can you share the initial story? I guess we, sure. before we slam into that, let's uh, maybe do a better introduction of who you are and kind of what you do. I guess I'm just assuming everybody sure. knows about you, but <laughs> sure. maybe let everybody know who you are and what you do. Yeah, so my, my background is in is in web development. Um, I uh, I definitely started my my own path of independence, freelance web development, uh, working with designers and small companies building out their websites. Um, uh, since then, moved on to, to found Indie Hall, and since founding Indie Hall, I've made the transition into um, you know, more business strategy, product development, um, and also this weird twist on team development that we can talk about a little bit if if you want. I've got some, I've learned some interesting things about uh, how how people work together through the different styles of work that I've had an opportunity to experience. Um, but I do come from a tech brown, tech background, and so uh, most of the projects I tend to work on are, are tech oriented in one way or another. Any fun stories about your initial start? Yeah, so uh, so when Indie Hall was just getting started, it was really me trying to figure out who else was was here in the first place, um, and that started out. I mean, you you go to you, I remember we talked earlier. You said you go to the Ruby the Ruby meetup in Houston, yeah, and I was looking for every meetup that I could find that was even moderately relevant to what I do and what I was interested in. What I was really looking for was interesting people doing interesting things and figuring out where it was that I had to find them. Um, and so when we got started out, there was no Indie Hall space. Indie Hall was an idea um, at, at best, but an idea that I thought that a lot of people would really dig on. So um, it was really about finding people and figuring out where they were, what they were doing and things like that. And when it started out, I was going around this sounds insane, but I swear I'm not lying. I was going to three to four user groups a night, five or six nights a week. So I was a total user group junkie. Wow. Um, it was it was insane. And what was really cool was um, after a few weeks of doing that, or maybe maybe six weeks or so, you started seeing some of the same people at the same events, and I call it the Marla Singer effect. 
Remember in, in Fight Club when Jack starts seeing Marla Singer at all the self help groups and they have to split them up? Yeah, I yeah. ran into the same sort of experience. And what's really cool is those people have been some of the people that to this day I work with the most, I enjoy working with the most. They're they're super connectors. Those people are they're out there actively seeking out cool things and seeking out opportunities to show off the cool things that they're working on. Um, and that's really I mean, that was really the foundation of the network that eventually became Indie Hall. Um, along the way, uh, I was using one of the, the local u- user, like not a Usenet group, a new, uh, what do we call it, an email list, one of those. Um, a local new media association was one of the places that I was sort of rabble-rousing, and, and uh, one of the regulars emailed me off list, and his name was Jeff Damasi, and Jeff basically emailed me and said, so who are you and what the hell are you trying to do? Um, I like your style. <laughs> and so um, I met Jeff and he had a design development studio in South Philly and he was teaching at University Arts and he had founded his local civic association and he came from an arts background. So he'd been involved in the creation of arts collectives. So a lot of my ideas were were comfortable and familiar to him. And he was like, I think we can do what a lot of other people have done in arts collectives and business associations better by combining our interests and our experiences um, from sort of both of those worlds. And that's really sort of the, the shortest version of, the, the, of a very um, long friendship, mentorship, and business relationship that I have with Jeff. Um, the, one of the most interesting things about our co-foundership, I suppose, is that when we opened Indie Hall, even when we got together to open Indie Hall, Jeff didn't need space. He already had a company and a design studio and employees and things like that, but I did. And it's been really cool to have a co-founder who, when, when th- there's some elements to, to the business that I see things because I'm in the space as often as I am, and he doesn't see those things and allows us to evaluate um, some of the, the tougher problems that we run into, which tend to be some of the sort of societal issues of running a co-working space. He doesn't get quite so wrapped up in the the, the personal relationships that I necessarily have with a lot of the members because he doesn't get to see them every day. And that's actually been really valuable in, in approaching growth from, from a really organic standpoint. So you met up with Jeff back in 2006. That's when you kind of connect with him. What- it was like right before South by Southwest 2007. Okay. And what was it, uh, I guess, what was the first things that really kicked off Indie Hall? I know you kind of were in this nine-month sprint where you were kind of gathering resources and collecting people and essentially creating a community before you'd even established it. Why, why did you go that approach? Well, I mean, to be completely honest, I didn't really have a choice. I was, you know, I was 23 years old. I had whatever cash I had in the bank. No, no sane landlord would sign a lease to me for a business model that it was didn't make doesn't make any sense to a, a traditional um, business person, at least at the time. Um, and so I was like, well, if I don't have a space, I should go after the other thing that I need, which is the people. And what we learned is how powerful having the people beforehand really is. Um, the little the little things that come out of it, and the fact that the the if you focus on finding members for developing co working first, you're always going to be focused on the members. And instead of trying to fill a space with Amenities, you're trying to fill a space with people. And I think it fundamentally changes your approach to what you're trying to accomplish, um, which for us was always about the people. Let's talk about the business model real quick of, of a, um, I guess, a, a place like this, a, a co working sure. space. What is the business model for typical places? And do they all kind of share the same idea or is it different? It's, it's, super, it's super, I mean, you can make it as complicated as you want. We strive to keep things as super simple as possible from an administrative standpoint, as well as from an explaining how it works standpoint. So we've got 
it's a membership organization. The business is supported by membership um, rather than desk rentals. And I think that's another sort of fundamental decision that we made. Um, and I can get to that as I work my way backwards through the, the membership. So if you want a permanent full-time desk, and mind you, every, every, all of our memberships are month to month. So you can come in one month and leave the next, um, and, and that's totally fine. But we find that most people like it a lot, like it a lot and stay. So you want a permanent desk. You want to call it your home. You want to be able to come and go as you please, leave a monitor, leave a computer, whatever it is that you want. Our full-time membership is $275 a month, which in most major metros is about half or less than you would pay to get you know, an office in an executive suite or something like that. Um, we have about 30 or so full-time members uh, at present. Um, then we have a light membership that's up to three days a week. That's for the people that are going to come and go pretty regularly, but they don't need to leave stuff all the time. And their schedule is kind of flexible. And we say three days a week, but it's really more like you know 12 days a month. And we don't really keep tabs on that anyway because there's not as much benefit to it. Um, and that's $175 a month. But the real key, I think, to our success was the introduction of a basic membership. And our basic membership is $25 a month. It includes your first day free. And then additional days are $15 a day. Um, that $25 a, um, a month rate is strategically similar to our $25 a day drop-in rate where you can come and work for a day without having any membership. But the nice thing is if you come in and drop in for a day at 25 bucks at the end of the day, we have the opportunity to say, did you have a good day? Are you thinking about coming back? You should consider joining at a basic membership. You get plugged into all of our community right resources. You become a card-carrying member of any hall, and any other days you use this month are discounted. And once people are in, you know, most people are in the first day. By the second or third day, they're absolutely hooked. And that conversion point for us has been absolutely huge. And the other thing worth noting about our basic membership is over half of our hundred and some odd, maybe like 110, maybe 115 members on our monthly paying rotating roster. Of them, about half of them are basic members. And a vast majority of our basic members never use desks at all. They come to events. They come and support the um, uh, the other organizations that we get involved with. Basically, a membership to Indy Hall um, at this point, and one of the really cool things and to me as a founder is the fact that it's got value to simply being a member above and beyond using desks. Yeah, it's like saying I'm a member of Indy Hall. It's got, there's some cred to it. There's some street cred to come with that. Yeah, yeah. And and that's I mean that's really exciting to me. You know, that's that's something that makes me feel really good about what we've created. But the fact that people are finding that as an opportunity to that you know, they use that when they're going to get work or when they're meeting people and and that, that credibility is is very real and something that we uh, we work really hard to pay attention to and make sure that we understand what it means. It almost seems like these co-working spaces are kind of, because you said they're a directory of some sort too, of a certain type of base or a certain type of people that are in a community uh, in a certain city, of course, but it almost seems like they're Chamber of Commerce 2.0, but meets business relationships. It's almost like Chamber of Commerce and executive suites are trying to do something, but they're, they're missing the most essential piece, which is um, the people and the relationships and the events and the community and stuff like that. Yeah, I, th- I think you nailed it. I mean, business services are nothing new. Providing desks and chairs in a room is an old business model. Um, and it's been proven to be one that's not ridiculously um, 
it's it's not ridiculously sustainable unless you're pumping a lot of resources into it. And what was important to us was to build something that could sustain and grow above and beyond Jeff and I being the people at the helm every day. Um, and that we, we built it in such a way that our members have taken an immense amount of ownership over the physical space that we occupy, the name and the brand that we well, that they represent, quite frankly. I, mean, we, I think they represent us far more than we represent them. Um, and that, that sense of ownership is something that you don't find when someone's just going in and you use a desk for a day or when somebody is paying membership to a chamber of commerce simply for you know insurance benefits or what, whatever. I, 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 I'll be completely honest. We've been approached by a number of times um, as Indie Hall's business owners to join the Chamber of Commerce, and every single time the person's emailed me, I've asked them, what do, I, what do I get? What are my benefits? And they haven't been able to articulate what the benefit to being a member, they, they, they tell me that the features are, you know, you get, you know, this insurance discount, this, that, and this. No, what are the benefits? Why does this benefit me? And I feel like where we strive is we've been able to articulate and figure out what benefits people are actually looking for, how it, how it makes their lives better, how it makes them happier, um, how it makes them more money and those sorts of things. Um, above the features, the desk, the chairs, the resources, so on and so forth, those are far less important. You mentioned that, uh, that some of the best conversions is, uh, is your uh, – was it light members or what was the – Oh, the, the people that drop in, most people that drop in become a basic member. A basic if, they're gonna, member. If, if they're in Philadelphia, like people that drop in because they're just in town, that's awesome. And we get tons of awesome drop-ins, like just cool, interesting people that are coming through Philadelphia for a day for business or whatever. Um, you know, when when the GitHub guys are in town, they almost always drop by Indie Hall and um, you know, you know, the, when the, the uh, within the web world, when internet fe- internet famous people are in town, there's a good chance they've heard of Indie Hall, and it's kind of neat to be able to you know bump into someone cool and interesting just because they happen to be in town. It's a destination. Absolutely. So, what is it that uh, makes them come back? Can you give us some examples? of the experiences that these people have that makes them want to come back and get hooked on what Indie Hall provides? You know, I think there's, there's a couple of things. N- number one, I think the most common thing we hear, and so I ask someone how their first day was, and they go, I was ridiculously productive. And I think that people are used to having to work through distractions and things like that. And if you're coming from working at home, your distractions are things like, you know, I could do the laundry, I could walk the dog, I could do the dishes, anything to procrastinate work. Um, if you're working in an office, your distractions are, or, or, quite, I think the biggest one is office politics and meetings um, are, are probably the two biggest distractions. And at a place like Indy Hall, we have distractions. It's, it's a noisy, kind of rambunctious workplace. But I feel like the distractions that you experience at Indy Hall, are, they're productive. If you're being distracted, it's usually because two people are talking about something really interesting um, that you might stand to learn something from. And so if you break away from your work, it's not to do something that's distracting from your work, but it's something that may contribute to your work later on. Um, the other thing is, is when you're in a room full of people that are hustling, you kind of feel really bad about yourself if you're not hustling. So you get kind of, when you, when the room is in sort of heads down mode, you, you just crank. Um, and I, it sounds kind of, kind of, sounds kind of hokey, but like just being in the a room full of positive energy of people that are just producing, um, people come in and they're like, holy crap, everyone here is working really hard. It's time for me to work really hard too. And they just, they just do it. It's amazing. A couple questions that came from uh, Alan Branch on Twitter. Um, I'm actually specifically uh, interested in these two points too, but questions he has um, 
are how do you start a co-working location and what kills a co-working location? Oh, those are good questions. So, um, I think, um, well, we talked about this a little bit. I think the, the best way to start a co-working location is to start with the people. Um, once you have the people, I, they, will, they will tell you what they want. Um, it's your job to figure out of what they want you should actually and can actually provide. Once you've got people, um, you like all the hard questions get answered. Where should it be? Well, where do, where do those people want to hang out? Um, what should it look like? How should we furnish it? Uh, you can include them in all of those decisions or better yet, like I said, you don't even need to make a decision. A lot of times they can, they can do it for you. Um, when it comes to the actual space, a couple of things that we've learned that are really important, it's really easy to rush into opening space, to, to leasing space, buying space, however you're going to approach it. Because quite frankly, that's, that's the sexiest part of it, right? I... I am responsible for square footage in a part of a place. Like that's that's kind of cool. That's kind of unique. Not a lot of people get to do that, and so people rush towards that because it's the most attainable uh, uh, thing that you know how to do. But instead, but what happens when you go that route is you. Um, uh, you end up with a room full of, well, you uh, and, and not other people. And instead of spending all of your time gathering people together, you're just trying to get them in the door at the first, uh, in the first place. And that's, it's distracting from what you should really be working on, which is getting people together, not just getting them in the room in the first place. The other thing that we learned in terms of where, you know picking your location is you're going to find places that are great. Um, try not to fall in love with a place just because it's awesome. Uh, awesome places for one reason or another, also tend to have crappy landlords. Um, we've been really lucky both times in both of our locations to have just phenomenally understanding, compassionate, smart, progressive um, landlords. Most landlords are going to look at this and go, uh, go, if they don't get it, they think that you're up to something and they're just going to take advantage of you um, because this business model doesn't make sense to a traditional landlord. Um, in the situations where a landlord gets you, that landlord's going to go out of their way to help you, help you get good deals. They will help you, you know, work with contractors. They'll help you get uh, resources. I mean, our our landlords tell their other property um, tenants how proud of the fact that they house Indie Hall they are. And I think that's a testament to having a landlord that really appreciates what you do. Um, so I think that you know, th- those are probably the first two steps is find a group of people that want it. And then find a landlord that gets it. And if you've got those two things, a lot of the hard stuff is gonna is just gonna fall right into place. You mentioned you're a, a co-conspirator and a creator, and I live here in Houston. And we have this space called Caroline Collective. You, yeah. And I call earlier you mentioned that uh, you know some of the folks there. Were you a part of getting that started? And in a in a very sh- strange but fascinating way. So um, that South by Southwest that I mentioned. Um, the, you know, I met Jeff right before it, and actually, that was the, one, of the, one of the first times I was immersing myself in sort of this larger world that is, you know, interactive and digital and web and making and web apps and business and all the stuff that we we kind of love. Um, and when I came back from South by Southwest, I had seen lots of. Um, Lots of cohesiveness. Basically, there was a lot of cities being represented. I could talk to somebody. I could figure out where they were from. And there, there was you know, patterns. There was obviously New York and San Francisco, but Boston was getting kind of hot. D.C. was getting kind of hot. And I, I left South by Southwest going, why isn't Philly – why doesn't Philly have a voice at a place like South by Southwest? And my, my goal – 
before I left South by Southwest was to come back the following year with Philadelphia as a posse. I wanted to come back as a unified group. Um, and I was telling this story to a guy over a cigarette at a party um, at that South by Southwest about how I just I really I wanted nothing more than to put Philadelphia on the map. I wanted to come back next year, and I just wanted everybody to know that the cool shit happened in Philly too. And um, and this guy was like, "That's you know that's really awesome. You know, good luck to you." And then twelve months later, at South by Southwest two thousand and eight, we had opened Indy Hall, and you know things were uh, humming along. And and uh, I'm at I'm at yet another party. It was I think it was like the closing Media Temple party or something like that, and. I bump into the same guy and his name is Matthew Wettergreen. And Matthew and I hadn't spoken in, in those 12 months. And, um, and so we're, you know, we're standing at the side of this party and he goes, I, I've been meaning to thank you. I said, for, for what? <laughs> and he goes, well, when we talked last year, you really got me thinking. And when I got back to Houston, I decided that once I finished up my, my degree, that's what I was going to do. And I'm still staring blankly at this guy, trying to figure out what on earth I could have possibly said to him. But he basically said that, you know, watching you crave unity for your region made him realize that he wanted that too. And he went on to meet his partner, Ned, and found Caroline Collective. And it was that March that he said, we're opening in June. I would love it if you would, if you would come to the opening. And it was like, it was that moment that like, I didn't, I didn't realize that I was inspiring somebody else because I was too busy trying to inspire myself. Um, but to, to walk into Caroline Collective that first time and meet all of these people who had been working so hard with Matthew on, on getting things going, um, uh, and, and to have this just fantastic space and, and community of people that, that already knew who I was and already knew what influence I had over this place existing in the first place and how thankful they were. That was one of the that, that, that may have been a turning point for me realizing that what I was doing with Indie Hall wasn't just about Indie Hall, but there was there was bigger opportunities here to to help other people do things um, the the way that we think is um, is actually creating the most long term value. I think it's kind of funny too that um, <clears throat> excuse me. I think it's funny that you mention it like that because two podcasts ago I talked to Amy Hoy and we'll get to some of the things you've done with her in just a second, but. Uh, one of the things that I kind of kind of uncovered in that podcast with her was um, was this idea of achieving happiness and Tony Shea's book uh, of delivering happiness. I listened to that afterwards after talking to Ryan uh, Carson as well a few episodes back as well. But you know, I think people tend to chase money sometimes, and it seems yeah. like you know that moment there for you was probably more triumphant than any big payday that you've ever had. You know, like money just doesn't create real happiness. I think moments like that when you when you influence and change people's lives that's that's a, a fun thing to do if i was I, I sort of came to terms with this actually over the last few weeks you know, just finally being able to break away some work and um spend some time in my own head i realized that if i was to if i was to um determine if i was to think about what the most important super superpower i could possibly have what would be it's the power to move people like the power to get people that were that are going in a particular direction to think about the direction they're going and change their direction i think that uh call it influence or, or whatever like but the power to move people is um and and see them achieve the success that they were craving by having you know helped orient them there's not much more gratifying that than that it's really it, it's it's amazing Let's talk about hustling for a little bit. You uh, sure. you did this thing with Amy Hoy called the Year of Hustle, uh, Zero sure. to Launch. It was a course. 
Yeah. Uh, and earlier you mentioned you kind of dive into business strategy, product development, and team development. Um, let's talk about, I guess, that experience there with Amy and, and where that went with the Year of Hustle and why, um, why you guys even started that and what you're doing around that space now. Sure, sure. So, I mean, I think we started it because we had not worked together on anything yet. That was probably one of the biggest motivators. Um, you know, Amy and Amy and I had helped each other on things. Um, she, you know, I, I when when I created Unstick Me, that sort of one hour micro consulting service that I do, that that idea sort of came in a. Um, in a, a weird dark time where I was trying to fig- like, I was trying to like take the things that I was doing and package them up in a way that made any sense. And that was like this weird flash of a, of an idea. And I bounced it off Amy and she's like, I love it. I want to help. What can I do? And I was like, I don't know. And so she offered to design the websites. The unstick me website was one of the first times that Amy and I actually did anything together. Um, but, but that was more her helping me out and, I was visiting her and Thomas in Vienna a couple of uh, winters ago, and we decided to take a couple of days of the vacation and sort of whiteboard out what a curriculum would look like to help people build their first product-based business. Um, and it was basically how do you set up all the pins, or how do you set up all the pins so they're going to be knocked down most cleanly, and how do you launch so that your first user is your first customer? And that was really the core thesis of Zero to Launch: that on launch day you've got customers. Um, and so we, you know, we sort of hacked out uh, a curriculum and together built out uh, a lot of the material. And uh, we recruited, I think it was about 45 or 50 students the first time around from around the world, which blew me away. Um, Amy seemed less surprised. I was completely shocked that 45 people from anywhere, most of whom I didn't know, were interested in learning how we thought was the best way to build a product-based business. Um, but it ended up being amazing. Um, you know, we were able to sort of talk through our own experiences and, and processes for getting ideas into real things. And I think Amy mentioned this in the interview, like her and I have some pretty fundamental differences. Um, she's far more strategic. I'm sorry, she's far more tactical. Like she, she's going to come in with a, with a plan, moving from step A to step B to step C. I'm more tight iterative like i've got a i I got an idea where i want to be i don't necessarily know exactly where i'm gonna how i'm gonna get there and so i figure out what the next step that's most likely to get me in that direction is and then learn as much as i can very quickly in order to to determine if that was the right step and if i should make another one so that's one of the really interesting differences between my approach and amy's approach but i think the the difference allowed us to hit a sweet spot in the middle um, in terms of the lessons that we were able to teach and, and, and students really have, like to watch a student have an aha moment, to watch them beat their head against the wall and go, why won't my ideas ever make any money? And then one day realize, oh, that's why none of my ideas never make any money. Here's what I need to change. Um, again, not only gratifying, but, but certainly, certainly validating and, and that, um, you know, we can keep honing our own processes and, uh, for for building and launching, and, and know that we're gonna for as long as we keep trying that, you know, we'll we'll be successful. Um, the 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 sad part of that story was I got sort of wrapped up in a couple of compressed timelines, and I had to reduce my amount of time uh, contributed to like the second half of the class. And Amy really took the lead, and then when it came to she wanted to run it again, I said, you know what, I think uh, I think you need to run ahead with this. I don't feel like I'm going to be able to commit myself wholly to it. And I don't, I don't half-ass anything. At least I try not to. Um, 
so I said, you know, I feel like you're going to go through this. You're going to hone the curriculum that we, we built together and we can do another one in the spring and I'll be on board. And so that's my hope is that, you know, I've been reading all the material that, that, that's been honed between zero to launch and the 30 by 500 course. And she's really, I mean, talk about polish. It's, it was good. Now it's, it's amazing. Um, and I'm really looking forward to coming back and again, bringing in that sort of diverse insight into how we teach, um, the students i think it's going to be a blast yeah, i think it's funny every time i look at uh, amy or thomas's tweet stream uh they're launching a new product or releasing something new it's, it's always some sort of new announce at least this past few weeks have been on like launch madness yeah it's been and, and i mean and they've been technically on vacation for the last few weeks so think about it. that's what they do when in when they're when they're chilling out um you know they're they definitely the, the two of them are just massive, massive producers of high, high, not just, they don't just produce a lot of stuff. Everything pr- they produce is high quality. That's the thing that I think is remarkable. Yeah. I, I love this uh, concept that you have though of unstick me though. What, uh, what made you come up with that? What, what made you want to do this? So I, I think I realized that I was getting good at, like people were coming to me asking for advice or just around Indie Hall. Cause I was around people that were doing things and people are constantly bouncing ideas off of each other. But because I was there the most, I kind of got the most practice at it. So I got really good at it. I got really good at sort of dissecting people's problems down to what the one thing that was in their way and helping them discover what the thing they needed to do to get out of their own way was. Um, and it got, so, so two things happened sort of simultaneously. One was um, people started realizing that I was really good at giving advice like that. And so it almost got to the point where um, it was happening so much that I, I just, I needed some opportunity. I need a way to curb it. And so putting a price tag on it seemed like a good idea. Um, the, the, I, I wrote an article because we, we launched it. Was, uh, it was $240 for a one-hour session where the goal was for you to have the next step to, to, to solving your problem. I wasn't going to solve your entire problem. You were just going to know what the next thing was. Um, I don't know if it was the economy crashing, um, me not marketing enough, not marketing enough to the right places, um, but the $240 price point didn't seem to stick. Um, and so I dropped it. Um, and at the same time, I, I still haven't ever really marketed it. There's some, there's some decent SEO um, that brings people to it. More people find it through various blog posts that I've written about all kinds of things, anything from co-working to the Clutran Manifesto to um, uh, software bundle economics. I, I write about... The, any interesting idea that pops in my head, I really like to write. And so people find my blog posts, then they see on stick me and they go, Oh, I do have that thing. That's kind of been nagging me. Let me see if this, this guy can help me out. And so, um, so that's where most of the customers have come from, but I've never, I've never really marketed it. I, I would like to, but it's, I, I've gotten wrapped up in some bigger projects. I think that unstick me was a nice thing to, to sort of, um, pepper all of my other things that were going on with, um, but but it's, it hasn't ever really become. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen it as like a main as a main course. It's always been a side dish. I'm not sure that I have the same influence that you do, or even the knack that you do with the the practice of solving problems. But uh, sometimes I feel like I need an unstake me for myself. Have uh, Have you thought about turning this into something that other people can attach themselves to? You know, I a number of people have have asked me about it, and and I, that's something that I would really like to do. I said I wanted to do it in two, in twenty ten. Maybe maybe I'll do that next year. I think that the main challenge with that is going to be, you know, if I want to I want to vet people, and I think the the benefit in attaching people to it 
would be maybe some, some form of specialization. Um, probably the biggest hurdle for me in watching on Stickney was building confidence that I could actually help people with problems if I didn't know that person or I didn't necessarily understand their, like the scope of where, where they were having their problem. Um, uh, so the majority of the unstick me sessions that I've done have been an exercise in me abstracting problems away from the context of the problem that's happening in. Um, and that, that's something that I, I think just takes a lot of practice. So I, I think that, uh, having, having, uh, some sort of mechanism or opportunity to see people's opportunity or see people's, um, ability to do that. And then get them on board. I know there's lots of other people out there that would be awesome at this. It would be really cool to have sort of an umbrella um, system to, to get people uh, calling into this sort of service. I don't know exactly what it would look like, though. Yeah, I'm not really sure either. But I just know that sometimes I'm, I find myself giving away 30 minutes to, ha- to an hour um, of, of my time at no cost. I'll tell you what, man. Uh, Steal the idea. <laughs> if I'm not going to do it, I don't want you to hold out. So, you no, know. I, I don't think that uh, – I'm going to just say right now, I don't think that's my space. But uh, I'd entertain doing it here and there. And it's not like I want to um, – I, I, no, I couldn't step in your shoes in that case. I just couldn't it's, do it. It's fun. I mean, I'll tell you, I, did, I did it on Stickman a couple of months ago for a guy who's like a – he was a gray-haired executive, self-described gray-haired executive dude. He's like, I've been in big business. I've been the CEO of multiple companies who's – um, you know, three letter names, you know, um, and, uh, he went off to, to create this consulting company in the early two thousands. And he, he basically created a new niche in his business. Um, this new measurement technique for, um, for, for customer interaction, I suppose it's the best way to describe it. And long story short, as a pioneer of the space, he like eight years later was hitting the point where, um, other businesses had basically taken his trademarked term for this measurement the term the measurement sort of become kleenex right like kleenex is the brand tissue is the thing so he had the brand and people were taking it as just that well that's what this is just called and so for the first time in eight years he was competing in his own space for the thing that he created um but he was okay with that he was more interested in um learning how to compete than trying to you know go after people on trademark. He's like, I think it's really cool that people are, are, you know, adopting this technique. I just need to stay one up ahead of the game. And so I got to spend a, an hour on the phone with this guy's first pitch deck on his technique that he had been selling for almost a decade and rip his pitch deck apart. And for me, that was fun. And he was, he was basically, he's like, I've always been the executive. No one ever tells me I'm doing a crappy job. This was awesome. So I get to be completely candid and honest and tell people what I actually think they need to do. And they're appreciative because we have nothing between us, but $140 an hour of each other's time. (laughs) (laughs) What are some of the other common problems people have just getting their own way or procrastination? I think people get stuck on weird stuff. Um, uh, A lot of people aren't comfortable prototyping something small and seeing how people actually interact with it. Um, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a total minimum viable product addict. I know that once I get something out, there's infinite amounts of time to improve it, but there's not an infinite amount of time to get something out in the first place. So I want to get something out there in, in some usable form as quickly as possible and getting people comfortable with that, getting people over their hangups, um, is, is probably the most common thing. So in those, in those sorts of calls, I'm more of a therapist, and I'm more of an unlicensed therapist <laughs> than than really you know doing any form of business strategy. It's helping people, helping people um, 
just sort of relook at themselves and, and what they're trying to accomplish. I'm going to be honest. I almost called you uh, on, on Stick Me actually last year. Oh, yeah? It's one of, like every time I talk about it with somebody, I go, man, I really got to work on that some more. So um, maybe, maybe while I'm on vacation, I'll, I'll jot down some notes and maybe you've inspired me to, uh, to hit, hit the ground running with Unstick Me next year. I think it's cool, especially if you love, you know, picking apart problems. I mean, you can. I have learned so much. I mean, like I, like, I love that I've gotten to help people, but every time I interact with somebody, I learn something. And I'm a total addict. Like, I'm a, I'm a college dropout, but I love learning. And so not having, a, you know, I didn't have a classroom. And so between Indie Hall and Unstick Me and business consulting, like for everything I'm able to give somebody, I feel like I feel just as privileged to to be able to learn from going through that process with them. I wouldn't doubt also. I'm not a, I'm not sure if you're a much of a book writer. If you I guess you write a blog, so it wouldn't be very hard to write a book. But I can almost see a book coming out of this too, where you can kind of at least censor some of the the names or problems or whatever, and expose some of these different things that you see as common traits and problems that people face that almost everybody gets hung up on. It that'd be kind of a cool thing too. I'll tell you what, I'll do that book when I'm done with the co-working book. Um, I started a project earlier this year um, with. Uh, do you have you talked to David Hauser yet? Uh, not on this podcast, actually, on the Web 2.0 show, episode sixty one. Oh, cool. So I met David at, at LessConf at the first one, and he was asking me about co-working because he was interested in sort of co-working relating to the empowerment of entrepreneurs, which is his whole yeah. his whole thing. Um, and I totally dig it. I think David's he's awesome. I love David. And yeah. so, um, so when we were talking, he goes, is any of this written down anywhere? And I was <laughs> like, well, on my blog and in the Indie Hall blog and in the Google group and the wiki. And like, yeah, if you're willing to cobble together six or seven resources, everything I just told you is there. And he goes why don't you tell the story? And I based my response was, well, this time and you know, my time turns into money and I just haven't been able to carve out the time to do it. And he goes, what if I paid you to do it? I said, well, let's talk about that. And so earlier in the year, David, um, David basically, uh, had a grasshopper sponsor, um, me getting started on a project to write, uh, the coworking book, which the the rough draft of the first chapter is actually up at thecoworkingbook.com. Um, and I have about nine other chapters written and about 10 other chapters um, uh, outlined. And the approach to the book, I wanted, I didn't want it to just be a book because coworking is still very much a living, breathing organism. And the history is, history is not yet written. It's still being written every single day. But what I wanted to do is create sort of a framework for how successful co-working communities and spaces are developed through the stories of how Indie Hall was formed and how other co-working spaces and communities were formed, but in sort of a linear storytelling format. And so if you could take sort of a mix between um, mix between a book that you could read end to end and sort of follow a journey, but it's really more of like a recipe book. Like I can sort of jump in, read a chapter, get what I need, and then jump out. It's written that way too. Every chapter is sort of built as a framework for new stories to be added to. So as co-working continues to evolve, as more people find successes and failures, the chapters are written in, in such a way that new stories can easily be placed into the chapters. Um, and the book can basically be a living, breathing document. We can release almost annual revisions of it was really my ultimate goal. But I have to release version one before I can have annual revisions. 
What's the plan for the book? Like, how would you? Is it going to be a printed book or one of these ebooks like a lot of people are doing? So I I, I, I launched it in um in this WordPress plugin theme based thing that actually lets you comment on every paragraph. So the idea was to to launch my written version for free online have people comment and contribute their own stories along like basically in the gutter um but everyone could read everyone else's stories and then me and you know a couple of other uh, co-conspirators would curate those stories into a final version at the end of the year and they would do like an e like a printed ebook or something along those lines if i you know if they got picked up by a publisher and they wanted to um, you know, drive this thing home or help me drive this thing home, I would be way into it. I'm not like dead set on it being an ebook, but I do want it to be something that is living and breathing and free online, but that we annually or, you know, something like that sort of curate and distill new refreshed stories into it, design it up real nice, you know, have artists come in and illustrate some chapters and things like that and make it something worth buying as well. You mentioned David, right? David Hauser. And yep. I think it's really funny that he inspired you to do that book. And at the same time, the reason why we're on this show right now, this podcast, is because of a conversation I had with him uh, oh. on Skype one day. We're actually entertaining different ideas about uh, working together in podcasting with the, the Web 2.0 show that uh, previous podcast I'd done. Yeah. And uh, it was actually in a Skype conversation, uh, like chat back and forth. Um, but he's like, you know, it needs to be about, you know, stories and businesses and founders and stuff like that. And I'm like, Hmm, founders talk. Yeah, and, that. and that was, it was perfect. And he, he absolutely loved it. Uh, uh, I'm not sure why we never ended up doing anything with it together, but, uh, ended up hooking up with Dan and, and here we are today. <clears throat> That's awesome. That's but, awesome. You know, to, to give David some credit though, is that, uh, you know, he's an inspiring person. I, I, I met him also at, uh, at Lesconf and, um, that was a, a huge turning point for me. Like back in episode six with, I think it's episode six with Alan and Steven. Yep. I mentioned to them that, uh, less conf one was, um, for me was pivotal, huge pivot in my life. And, um, and you know, meeting David and working with David and grasshopper on the web 2.0 show was pivotal for me. So it's kind of cool that he's influenced you as well. Well, I, th I completely agree. And if he happens to be listening, David, thank you again <laughs> for continually inspiring. Um, I think those little, those boutique conferences like LesConf are, are amazing. And you know, Amy and I, the, after the, the, the Zero to Launch course, one of the big comments we got was, um, where do we get more? And so Amy came up with this crazy idea that we should do a conference together. Um, and she wanted to do it in Vienna. And clearly the name was going to be SchnitzelConf. Um, and so Schnitzel I'm glad Conf you said it because I can't say that word. <laughs> <laughs> so SchnitzelConf basically became, I mean, in the same vein as LesConf, it was a um, no BS, this is real business, this isn't about startups, this is about selling things, this is about making money, this is about being successful, and this is about how people have done it and how people are still doing it at different stages. So we've got guys... Um, like Paul Campbell that, that built Ketchup, which is not, not a, he's not making any money from it, but it's given him an opportunity to launch a consultancy where he's now, you know, making bank building cool stuff for other people so that he can get back to his own ideas. And then in, there's Garrett Diamond with Sifter, who's, you know, the one man show and only in the last year went full time on his project. And he can talk about those trials and tribulations. Um, and then, you know, the guys at GitHub who are, you know, darlings of their own space. Um, and have a very practical attitude about you know how they've built a team 
And then you've guys got guys that have been doing this for a while, like like Toby um, at Shopify, talking about how you take a business that's already growing and how you analyze it to inject more growth into it. And it was really the the day was chock full of practical business knowledge from real people that just work really hard to figure out what works, and they were there to share it with our with our guests. Um, it was uh, it was. It was one of those days that you look back on and go, there's not a lot of days in a, in a person's life or career that are like that. And, and to be, again, to be a part of that was, um, was truly remarkable. And now that Amy and Thomas are in Philadelphia, we've been talking about a reprise um, stateside here in Philadelphia. And we would clearly call that, you know, cheesesteak conf. Um, <laughs> but it would be this is the same goal. It would be, you know, under 100 people, amazing event. We did it at the Natural History Museum in Vienna, which is. Like to all conference organizers out there, stop going to convention centers. Go to museums. They love having smart people there, and it's the coolest freaking venue in the world. I guarantee you're going to get a better deal, and your guests are going to be totally wowed. Hmm. That was a brilliant, brilliant move on Amy's part. And icing on the cake, she calls me and she goes, "So we figured out where we're going to have the cocktail hour." I said, "Where's that?" And she goes, "In the dinosaur room." <laughs> And I'll tell you what, man, I didn't know that partying in the dinosaur room in a museum was on my list of things to do. But as soon as I knew it was an option, it was absolutely on my list of things to do. And now I can say I've done it. <laughs> so you've also been uh, touring a lot this past year, speaking at different events. You were on the social media tour for, for a while and you were kind of uh, alluding to the fence. You might even get in, getting a little um, fatigued from it. What, uh, what kind of experiences can you share about traveling and and speaking quite a bit. Oh, man. So that was, that was actually, that was more like a couple of years ago. What happened was I started, uh, like my, my practical business communications Bible is the Clutran Manifesto, which is crazy that a book that was written over 10 years ago is still like more practical today than any business book that's come out in recent history. Um, and for those who haven't read it, I highly recommend you go read it. Um, it was basically written pr- uh, pre- dot com bubble about how the internet is changing business communication and how authenticity and transparency are going to be absolutely critical. And this is before social media took hold and started, you know, pounding those words into meaningless piles of themselves. Um, but so that, that clue train notion of like the best way to be in business is to be yourself is really like my entire foundation of every business I've ever started or been a part of is it's way too much work to be anybody but yourself. So I'm just going to be myself. And if people don't like it, then I don't want to work with them. And being myself has led me to work with people that I love working with, to work on things that I love working on. And, um, and so that sort of made me really impassioned about the clue train message. The problem with the clue train message that I, I sort of saw and wanted to combat in the coworking book is the clue train was written 10 years ago. So it's case studies or companies that are, they're not relevant anymore. And they're companies that certainly exist, but nobody building a business today relates to IBM. They relate to Facebook, whether they should or they shouldn't. They relate to Zappos, whether they should or they shouldn't. Um, And what I wanted to do is basically rewrite the clue train chapter by chapter, because it was built into, uh, it was broken out by 99 theses. um, I'm sorry, 95 theses. Um, that basically outlined here is how the internet is changing business. And so I took my project was to take every one of those 95 theses and write a blog post about it and update it to sort of contemporary, um, uh, you know, contemporary case studies and businesses. 
And uh, much like the co-working book, I got about a third of the way into it and life took hold and I ended up working on some other things. But the cool thing about that is, you know, having written about that and having been very sort of open and clear about my objectives as a business person um, and how, how Indy Hall got, you know, got caught, it caught on, it got caught on, not just locally, but we were, we had international press within a few weeks of us opening. Um, and I never wrote a press release and businesses that are in the business of writing press releases see that and they're interested if they're not scared. Um, and so I found myself sort of, uh, unexpectedly initiated into the world of social media, even though I have no marketing background, I have no PR background. And I've, the, my, the difference between most of the people at social media, in the social media space and myself is I've gotten really good at it, but I, I came from the world of people that build those kinds of tools, not the people that try and figure out how to use them. So I got to spend my time just figuring out what they actually meant, not how to use them in the first place. Um, and, and therefore was on, you know, I was doing the, the social media conferences and uh, I was still really just talking about how Indie Hall built, like helped build relationships between its members and how that's helped us grow and become well-known and become well-respected and sort of trying to correlate that to other people's businesses and suggesting that if you invest time in helping your customers get to know each other, and learn from each other and you just act as a facilitator, not only are they more likely to be customers for life, but they're more likely to recruit on your behalf and therefore you're not spending money, you know, blasting your message to eyeballs and ears that don't care. But instead you're channeling that same amount of energy into people that will actually make real movement happen in your business growth. Well, I guess it's, uh, it's come near to the end. We're, we're at about 50 minutes now, which is probably, uh, not a bad place to be, but uh, I do have one last question for you, which is uh, the super secret question. So I want to uh, know if you've got anything that's super secret that hasn't been blogged about on your blog, hasn't been tweeted about, nobody else knows about it. Maybe you've shared the idea with a couple close confidants that you co-conspirate with. Sure. But is there anything that's uh, that's on your plate that's super secret that you can announce here today? So I can't give all of the details, and it's, it's an idea that we've talked about a little bit, but what I can say is that it's moving forward. Um, the, well, the chance of it moving forward increased dramatically in, in very recent history. But, you know, Indie Hall has been, we've been around as an organization for four years. We've been occupying space for three years. We upgraded from 1,800 square feet that we opened into almost 5,000 square feet a year and a half later. And so we're, you know, growth is on our mind and growth isn't just in terms of, um, you know how many members we have, but also how we take what we've learned from Indy Hall and extend it into the rest of our lives and the rest of our members' lives and the rest of other people's lives. And so we have this idea that the next version of Indy Hall is not going to be one space. It's probably not even just going to be one building. But I want to buy a city block. And I want to build... So like a piazza, like like a European piazza where they have you know, multiple buildings sort of with, a, with an open area between them, uh, sort of a mix of public and private space, a mix of um, inside space, a mix of outside space, a mix of 
um, business use, a mix of commercial use, a mix of workspace, a mix of social play gathering space, and really explore all the things that we've explored with Indy Hall in terms of building relationships through social interactions prior to the transactional um, focus of business that is typically focused on first and say, what happens if we create an entire place where almost everything you need, almost like a self-sustaining community, um, gets to benefit from the same sorts of interactions? So what that actually looks like, where it goes down, who's involved, I can't give all of those details, but that's like, that. I'm really excited that this thing feels more real than than I think I'm comfortable with. <laughs> um, but I hope that, um, I hope that it happens, uh, because I, 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 it's just one more chance to set an, you know, set an example of how, how important some of these lessons we've learned at running a co-working space have been. Um, it's not about renting desks. That's for sure. Uh, I have to say that that's actually some, some pretty good news to me because I've, I've thought about something similar like that, and obviously I'm not a, a starter like you are in that space, but I thought, wouldn't it be pretty cool to almost have like a, a city or a place people could live, they can work, they can kind of be in the same mindset, the same kind of genre of people, maybe not the same industries, but certainly the same kind of things you see happening at co-working space, and I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we could just like kind of be there and self-sustaining, maybe even the fastest internet possible, you know, all these different benefits that come to geeks uh, like us that just... Um, get excited about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, we 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 for, we started out attracting just geeks, you know, designer developer folks. But in the last year, we've grown to, you know, artists and scientists and academics and architects and in people from more industries than I can rattle off the top of my head. And so I feel like having even ha- having this is going to give more people more reason to be together. Um, and the more times you get people from different industries with different ideas bumping into each other, the more interesting things happen, I think. So that's really the, that's, that's the end game for me is just making interesting things happen. Where will any announcements be about this whenever they are announced? If this happens, um, well, no, not if, when this happens, I want to be a little more confident than that. Um, uh, my blog, dangerouslyawesome.com, uh, as well as, uh, the Indie Hall blog, indiehall.org. And you can be you be sure I'll, I'll be tweeting about it the second I know anything that I can talk about. So if you're not following Alex knows HTML, go to twitter.com right now and do that. Uh, I can't imagine anybody's listening to this and not and not following. How many followers do you have, by the way? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, honestly, I, I honestly I haven't looked in. So it's one of those things that I, I don't pay. Honestly, I don't pay attention to it because it doesn't it doesn't matter to me at all. I. Um, Twitter's one of those things that lets me stay in touch with lots of amazing people all over the world. Whatever the count is, it doesn't matter as long as they're amazing. Um, I've also been on it since like the end of 2006, so I got a good running start ahead of a lot of people. So whatever, it's like 5,500 people. It's a bunch. So that was before Twitter was cool. Yeah. Yeah, Well, no, it was always cool. (laughs) We we thought it was awesome. (laughs) You're right. It was cool. (laughs) I have to say that uh, I actually didn't get on to... My, it was before my mom knew what Twitter was, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of what I meant by, by cool. I didn't actually get started on Twitter really deeply until, I think, early 08, maybe um, mid-07. So I was a little late to the game, but still early. It's, um, it's interesting, because having never lived in San Francisco, so many of my friends in San Francisco just assume that I have to have lived there at some point, because by watching like San Franciscans 
migration patterns and how, how much they announce about where they're going to hang out, what neighborhoods are hot, where offices are. I, I knew my way around San Francisco before I ever set foot in that city because of people talking about it on Twitter. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Uh, anything else that you want to mention before we uh, head off? No, man, this was really cool. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time, and have a great holiday. Yeah, uh, Merry Christmas, everybody who's listened to this. If, if it's, uh, I think this will probably actually get pushed out after Christmas. But uh, hope you had a good one, good presents, and all that good stuff. And and Alex, it was a, honestly it was a pleasure talking to you. And I hope that uh, people that have listened to this uh, this podcast got a lot from you because I know that I'm certainly inspired by you. Like, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Have a have a great holiday, a safe and happy New Year. Yes, you too. 